0: And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over.
1: Sarah McDermott was a young woman from a loving family who was just going about her business when she was taken. Sarah and her family had moved to Frankston in January, and during the working week, Sarah drove her car to the Kananook Railway Station to catch the train to her job in the city. Kananook was supposed to be a safer station to park at than Frankston. But, like so many crimes that happen out of the blue, something is safe until it isn't. Vicky Petratus explores the horror that occurs when a family member just doesn't come home.
2: On Wednesday the 11th of July, Sarah McDermott's workmate Gavin rang the National Tennis Centre at Flinders Park, now known as Melbourne Park. He wanted to cancel one of the three tennis courts he'd booked for 5.30 that afternoon. Some people who usually played with them at Wednesday afternoon tennis had cancelled. So that left Sarah, Gavin, Diane, and another workmate, Mike, to play
3: we had a regular weekly group and at that stage the company was pretty keen on physical activity and mike was the managing director di and i were junior staff as was sarah in finance so just put something up you know and that's how i met her was uh, basically i had some dealings with her in a business sense uh, across the insurance business at the time but i didn't really know her socially and she was to get down and have an activity. So we'd started and we were the core four. And um, there's a number of others who come sometimes, but it mainly was me, Di, Mike and Sarah. We'd play a couple of sets and then sit down in the lounge for a while, have two or three beers and then go off. So it was a nice, social, relaxing night.
2: So on that Wednesday after work, Mike drove everyone to the tennis centre. He, Gavin, Di and Sarah played tennis for an hour and then sat around for another couple of hours, having a bite to eat and a couple of drinks. After the game, Sarah noticed that the chain bracelet she normally wore on her right wrist was missing. Gavin and Di helped her search around for it, but they didn't find it. At the end of the evening, they left the tennis centre around nine o'clock. Mike drove off in his car while Gavin, Di and Sarah walked to the Richmond station. Gavin had only recently realised that Sarah lived in Frankston and travelled to and from work on the same train line he did.
3: Di and I had not long been together, and we would normally, after tennis, go back to her place, which was in Glen Waverley. And the day before, I didn't know or realise that Sarah was going to Kananook, and I was living in Bomb Beach. So. We had the choice of the two places. And I said, why don't we go home with Chefs there on the train? So that was the first time that we'd actually come back. We played tennis down there a number of times. That was the first time that we went back on the train with her.
2: Gavin Dye, and Sarah caught the 920 train from Richmond to Caulfield. At Caulfield, the Frankston-bound train was only three carriages long. Only the last carriage was lit up, and that's the one they got into. The train stopped at all stations from Caulfield to Frankston. Sarah had changed into a tracksuit before the game and carried her work clothes in a bag. Guy would later recollect what Sarah was wearing and carrying. These are her words, not her voice.
0: Sarah had a grey
2: coloured carry bag and I think a black handbag and a tennis racket in a black cover. She was wearing her tracksuit, which had green bottoms, and a white jacket, which had red, green, yellow and blue stripes. And it had ultimate on the left-hand side of the jacket. While Gavin was tired after a day at work, a tennis game and three beers, he doesn't remember the three of them talking much on the train ride home. He does remember, though, that they talked about catching up now that they knew how close he and Sarah lived geographically. Sarah asked Di for her phone number so they could arrange to play tennis on the weekend or maybe see a movie. Having just farewelled her friend Anna on her overseas trip, perhaps Sarah was looking to connect more with others from work.
3: That was probably one of the elements of what we chatted about and so we were planning on, yeah, well, we're all down this way and um, someone from work that we know and get along with, so we were planning on doing a couple of social things. And she was a social sort of a person, Sarah, and see, so she wanted a group and a friend and, and... this was the first sort of social interaction where we thought, yeah, we can extend this outside work and tennis after work.
2: Before the train arrived at Gavin and Diane's stop at Bond Beach Station, they arranged to meet Sarah on the train the next morning. Sarah said she would catch the 7.36 from Cananook, which would get to Bond Beach at 7.44. The train pulled into Bond Beach and Gavin and Di said goodbye to Sarah, leaving her to travel the final two stops to Cannanook. I've written a lot about these moments with too many victims' families. You're waiting for them to come home. The clock ticks closer to the time you think they'll come through the door, that time passes, a vague unease creeps in, perhaps first annoyance to mask it, then a feeling in your bones that something's wrong, the waiting, the act of grabbing your keys and going to have a look, more waiting, and finally the clock ticks over the minute that is one too many for it to be ignored, the questions, where is she? Why doesn't she call and nobody's saying the vital question, has something happened to her? Like so many other families, the McDermott's went through these exact moments.
4: We knew she was normally in the car heading home about ten-ish, five, ten past, quarter past ten, and it got a half past ten and there was nothing. Twenty to eleven, nothing, so Alistair...
0: He was down there till one o'clock. I was on an
4: early start, so I went off to bed thinking, what do we do here? Sheila's saying, oh, we should call her. And I said, well, you can call the police, but you're wasting your time because a 23-year-old.
2: And like for so many families, calling the police felt like an overreaction. Peter McDermott had been a police officer. No one would take it seriously if a 23-year-old woman was half an hour late home from work. Alistair wasn't as concerned as his parents. He was young and relatively sheltered. Bad things happened on TV, not in real life.
5: i just turned 21, so I guess I had youth on my side in the sense of the ignorance of youth, if you like, <laughs> or the optimi- optimism of youth. but I was getting worried, but I don't recall, you know, being anywhere near a state of panic or anything like that. It was just unusual, but I certainly wasn't panicking. I was concerned in, in as far as I was picking up the concern from mum and dad.
2: While the McDermott's tried to keep calm, they examined the train timetable and discussed that if Sarah wasn't home by the last train, perhaps she could have decided to stay with a friend.
5: We got to the back of midnight, and we'd been looking at the train timetables and following the different times that trains might come in, and hence when we thought she would maybe appear. And then I can remember there was like a last train at about one in the morning, and, and I said, well, I'll go down and just check for that last train coming in. So, uh, I hopped in the family car and headed down to Cannonook. And it wasn't the, the nicest sort of weather. It was quite cold and a bit damp. I don't know if it was actually rainy when I went down, but it was rainy, damp type weather. And I can remember I got down to the car park. It was quite dark because there was no, no lighting at that stage in any of these areas. And Sarah's car wasn't like tar- it wasn't tucked away in a back corner or something. It was quite a large car park, and her car was probably about a third to halfway from the where you would leave the railway station going into the car park. it was in the in the rows of parking bays that were close to the line of shrubs that separated the car park from the main road, the road that went up and over the railway line.
2: Alistair got to the Kananook Railway Station just as the last train went through at 1.18am. When he drove into the car park, Sarah's car was the only one left.
5: And what struck me was her car was the only car in the car park. So I immediately saw her little red Honda Civic, so I saw that straight away. And I drove into the car park and... I parked the car, and I walked around it, and I couldn't see any obvious signs of damage. There were no doors open or or signs of any... It was just a car parked in the car park. And I may have tried, like, a door to see if it opened or not.
2: To Alistair, the presence of Sarah's car, untouched and undamaged, suggested that his sister hadn't caught the train home.
5: After that sort of a look around and check, I got back in the family car and headed back to the house. When I got back there, I know that as a family we decided that we best just go to bed. I reported that there was no obvious sign of, of an issue. Her car was there, it didn't seem to have been damaged or there was no sign of a problem as such
2: a big part of the panic Peter and Sheila were feeling was that Sarah was the kind of daughter who would ring them if she was going to be late home or not come home at all it had happened in recent times Sarah was out and the weather had turned foggy and she decided to stay with a friend rather than drive in the fog she had not thought twice about ringing late
0: and waking her parents to let them know she was okay. I had this phone call at 25 to 12 at night, and she had driven up to her friend Angela's home because she was going to Angela's sister's wedding. And so she was going to be driving back. But I had this phone call from her at 25 to 12, and she said, look... Mum, she said, I'm not coming back tonight, I'm going to stay with Angela because Angela's mum said to her, you can't drive back Sarah in the fog.
2: And so when Alistair returned home to report on what he'd seen in the car park, nothing about that night seemed right.
5: When I got back home, there was obviously a mixed emotion there and as far as mum I know was more concerned... I think Dad, again, was I know he would have been concerned, but I think he was trying to keep a lid on things, and it was sort of like, let's all just go to bed, and we'll check in the morning. And by that stage, it was half past one, two o'clock, so it was as well to go to bed. There wasn't anything else we could do at that time. If Sarah had been 10 years younger, obviously, they would have been on to the police there and then. But you have this whole mindset of you live in a safe place. She's 23. And just because we haven't had a phone call as yet, we shouldn't hit the panic button.
2: In discussions after Alistair arrived back from the car park, he wondered if he and his dad should go and collect Sarah's car. They did this sometimes when she was going to be late. Sarah would take a cab home and Peter and Alistair would drive down and collect her car from the station.
4: She would always ring and say, look, I'm working late tonight, whatever. Don't worry, Uh, Alistair can pick up the car. I'll have a cab charge from the firm.
2: But when Alistair suggested collecting the car that night, Peter McDermott was adamant that the car should be left where it was. What if Sarah caught a ride with a friend to the station and arrived, and her car wasn't there.
0: When Alistair came back at one o'clock, you see, he said, no, she's not got off any of the trains. That's the last train. And then he said to his dad, why don't we go down and get a car? She doesn't like her car left. And Peter luckily said,
4: "I, I knew." I no, said, no, no, he said, "Leave it." Move that he
0: said, "We don't know what's happened." He said, "Supposing she hasn't been able to get hold of us, she goes to go to her car and it's not there." So he said, "Leave it."
2: It's hard to imagine the night the McDermott family spent, not knowing where Sarah was, hoping against hope that the morning would bring a phone call from her saying, "Sorry." I stayed the night with a friend and it was too late to call, hoping for a call, praying for a call, and trying not to think about what would happen if that call never came. I think it's an occupational hazard as a crime writer that, over the years, the accumulation of horror that I've heard from first-hand accounts builds up And like Sheila McDermott says at the beginning of the episode, it spills over. I've spent a lot of time with tears in my eyes writing the script for this podcast, but none more so than sitting alone, listening to the recording of Peter and Sheila McDermott talking about the moment they knew something had happened to Sarah. That one phone call that marked the first moment in a journey that is now gone on for 30 years. Particularly sad are the hours before they knew, when the possibilities still existed, that Sarah was okay. It was perhaps the last morning in a very long time that Alastair McDermott woke up without the weight of the world on his shoulders. Even after his late night visit to the Cananook Railway Station, he half expected that when he got up... Sarah would be in her bed with some reasonable explanation for what happened to her the night before.
5: I think my first thoughts were along the lines of I wonder what Sarah got up to last night or where she is, or is she already back in her bedroom? And then I was like thinking, well, I didn't hear her come back in. And then I got up with Mum and Dad, and I know that very quickly it was not good. I know mum was was then getting worried because she woke up, I would imagine, where she left off when she went to bed, which was obviously in a very anxious state.
2: The next morning, Peter McDermott left for work at a quarter to six, only after Sheila promised to let him know as soon as they heard from Sarah. Peter felt that if he went to work as usual, they could all maintain a calm as if everything was going to be okay. Sheila didn't wait until 9am to ring Sarah's work. Her first call was at 8.15. She spoke to a woman called Katrina, who told her that Sarah wasn't in yet, but Katrina promised to ask around to see if anyone knew where she was. But Sheila couldn't wait. A call at 8.40 and then a third phone call to Sarah's work just before 9am. This time when Sheila asked if her daughter had arrived at work yet, Sarah's boss came on the line. Sarah wasn't there, and she hadn't called in sick. And then Gavin and Diane had arrived at work. They had missed the 7.44am train, the one they'd arranged to meet Sarah on, and had instead caught the 8.04 train, which arrived at Flinders Street just before nine. With the time it took them to walk from the station, they were a couple of minutes late for work. It's easy to picture them trying to be unobtrusive, coming into work late and finding themselves suddenly surrounded by colleagues, all asking, Where's Sarah? In her police statement, Diane would later write, when we got to work, we walked in the door and everyone asked us if we had seen Sarah because she didn't come home and didn't come into work. And when Gavin and I explained how they had left her on the train the night before, suddenly everyone knew for certain something had happened to Sarah.
0: I phoned work because um, Peter didn't want to go to work. I said, you go to work. And I said, "I'll ring up her work and see what happened. I mean, by this time we knew that something was radically mm. wrong. But I rang, and the girl answered the phone, and I said to her who I was. And Sarah always got into work early, you see? And I said, I was just ringing to see if Sarah McDermott was in, in at work. So the next thing. Mark, her boss, comes on the phone and he says, Hello, Mrs. McDermott. He said, It's Mark here. He said, No, Sarah's not here. He said, But um, Diane Gavin are here. And they said that they were on the train with her last night. Well, I don't know how, whether I hung the phone up. I don't Alistair know. What rang I can remember. I just screamed. And I
4: could hear she was screaming. I, in the just couldn't. And I, thought,
0: right. I knew then that she was on that train and that.
2: Something had happened. Alastair also regards that phone call as the starting point. Before that moment, the crime had not existed for them. But that phone call, hearing that Sarah hadn't arrived at work and that she had been on the train the night before, meant something had happened to his sister.
5: That's the moment when I heard it in Mum's voice and I saw it on her face. And that's when, for me, the actual crime occurred the night before. Uh, instead of that, my day, in the space of a two-minute phone call, changed from whatever I was gonna do, whatever, was, whatever I was gonna do the next half hour, the next, the morning, the day, the rest of the week, whatever I was going to do at the weekend, all of that was just gone, obliterated, a bit like an atomic bomb going off.
2: Sheila and Alastair called the police while Peter hopped into his car and drove straight home, checking railway station car parks for his daughter along the way. What
0: happened was Alistair, he obviously took the phone from me, but he would be in shock himself, but Mm. he rang his father straight away and Peter said straight to Alistair, ring the police now and I'm on my way home. And so Alistair then phoned the police and there were a couple of uniform blouts came up first of all and that was when, by that time, oh, they yes. came in. I came and...
4: straight down the road, and I actually took time to look at Carham, yeah, Seaford, and Cannonick Station. It had been raining, and it looked... there's yeah. always rusty-looking water in car parks. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you just wonder what you walked in.
2: One of the uniformed police that arrived at the McDermott's was Constable Gary Richards from the Frankston Police. He was on divisional van duties when he got the call to attend the McDermott's home in Sky Road to take a missing persons report. By 10 o'clock, Richards and his partner were sitting with the McDermott's taking down the details. Sarah had caught the train home with two friends who alighted at Bond Beach, then continued on to Cananook. She hadn't made it home. Her car was still parked in the railway station car park. Alistair told them how he'd seen it there the night before.
4: It's the kind of thing you know in your own mind if the worst has happened and we wondered if it had, because it was so unlike Sarah. Yeah. She'd have got off the station. So we knew something had happened between the station and that car park.
2: After they had finished taking the missing persons report, Constable Richards and his partner drove straight to the car park at Cannanook Station. Like Alistair the night before, they too saw Sarah's car parked toward the northern end of the car park. They noted that it was locked, and the vehicle was still covered in dew and rain from the night before. It did not appear to have been used recently. They left it and headed to Frankston Police Station. From there, Constable Richards called Diane and Gavin at work to confirm their account of the train trip the night before. They repeated what Sheila and Alistair had said. They had caught the train with Sarah. They got off at Bond Beach. Last they had seen her was around 10.15 the night before. There was something about Sarah's disappearance that was different. There had been no family fights or misunderstandings. There was no reason for Sarah not to have come home it sounded serious. It was time to pass the case on to the detectives. Detective Inspector Laurie Ratz was the crime coordinator in charge of the Criminal Investigation Branches, or CIBs, across several districts. It was his responsibility to ensure the proper investigation of crimes committed within his region. By 11am, Laurie Ratz was notified of Sarah McDermott's disappearance. He was told how Sarah had caught the train with friends and then failed to make it to her car parked at the station.
6: People go missing and turn up, so you you don't get too excited about the fact that you've got a a reported missing person. But there was more to this uh, that came out very quickly that she was... Uh, not only was she missing, but it was unusual for her to be missing. She was a person of sober habits and with no skeletons in the closet. So it was very, very unusual and appearance were worried right about her. I got in touch with the head of the CIB at Frankston and, and the two detectives that were working were probably two of the best to, to go there. It was uh, Randall and Clark. And I suggested that they get down there to Cannonault Railway Station, have a look at the car.
2: Senior Detective Colin Clark had worked at the Frankston CIB since 1980 and was a veritable expert on anything that happened in the district. Together with his detective partner, Jeff Randall, the two had investigated murder, assaults, and everything in between.
1: Jeff and I worked very well as partners together. We'd done a lot of inquiries previously, and I think. Laurie had a lot of confidences because we both knew the area very well and we'd worked very well as partners, I think, and had solved a fair bit of crime in Frankston in those days.
2: The two uniformed cops arrived at the CIB offices and explained the case to Detectives Randall and Clark.
1: They then came to us and reported it. Uh, It just sounded very strange to me and uh, uh, Jeff and I went straight up and spoke to Sheila and Peter to satisfy ourselves and what was happening. And it was obvious as soon as we spoke to them and Alistair, the brother, that something untoward had really happened.
2: For the McDermott's, their daughter's disappearance perhaps felt more real when detectives disappeared into her bedroom to go through her things.
0: And then we had Cole and Jeff come in. And then, of course, that awful thing when they have to go to her room, quite rightly. You know, they've got to go through everything themselves and do everything. With the
2: almost constant presence of police officers in their house that day, Sarah's brother Alastair has never forgotten the strange brain scramble that he experienced trying to offer coffee and tea to the officers.
5: One funny thing I can remember. We ended up with a few police in the house, and where mum and I were trying to act normally was, we had visitors in the house, and we were thinking we would make them all a cup of tea and coffee. And then the funny bit was, because our brains had just been scrambled, we were literally aware that we had to keep going from the kitchen into the lounge room, which was like a four-step, five-step journey, but we had to keep going in and saying, "Sorry, was it? What were you having, tea or coffee? Um, was that with sugar, without sugar, with milk, without milk? Just that simple task of getting a tea and coffee order from about three or four people and remembering whether they take milk or sugar or not. We just between the two of us, neither of us could get that together.
2: As soon as Jeff Randall and Colin Clark left the McDermotts. They drove straight away to the Kananook Railway Station car park to examine Sarah's car. What they discovered would change the course of the investigation.
1: So we immediately went down to the Kananook Railway Station, saw the car, her little red Honda that was parked there. Of course, at that time of day, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon, when we got there. As soon as I walked up, there was a lot of other cars in the car park. I looked around the car, got under the car, saw, I thought it was blood splatters under the driver's side door. And of course there was cars parked right next door, got on and had a look. And I could see blood on the bitumen underneath the car that was parked at the driver's side of her car. The blood to an untrained eye wasn't immediately visible, but because uh, the car park was made of bitumen and and it was a very absorbent type of bitumen and and you could see the blood had had, uh, sunk in fairly well. I then followed the blood as far as I could underneath every car that was parked in. the. There would have been about 40 or 50 cars, I suppose, parked there at the time. Then I followed the trail of blood drips to a nearby bush area I found some blood on concrete curving and I could see it was still, it was in the bush area to the western side of the, the car park and I could see what appeared to be heel drag marks across the grass verge that led to a little bush area. I followed that in there and I found more blood uh, that was still fairly fresh, that was still in a fluid type in the bush and you could see the brackens had been disturbed in the bush and it was obvious to me that someone had been left in there bleeding for some time and I also found a little cigarette lighter in that area and the cigarette lighter had a name of a cafe in Melbourne on it.
2: The name of the cafe was printed on the lighter, Cafe Great Space, which was the cafe at the bottom of the building complex where Sarah McDermott worked. Detectives read crime scenes, they look at evidence and read the story it tells. Right from that first visit to Cannanook Railway Station, what did this evidence suggest to senior detective Colin Clark?
1: It suggested to me that straight away that Sarah had been stabbed or injured in some way, there was a fair amount of blood that was there that I could find and particularly blood trail went for some 30 or 40 metres and she'd been bleeding fairly profusely and in the bush area it was a fair bit of blood in there too, like, so it was obviously that she'd been hurt very badly.
2: It was the blood that made police take Sarah's disappearance seriously right from the start. There was no waiting 24 hours like in the movies. From the uniformed police who took the initial report to Detectives Jeff Randall and Cole Clark and then Inspector Laurie Ratz. When the two detectives reported what they found, Laurie Ratz mobilised the troops.
6: So it wasn't long after that that they came back and they said that there was blood there. So obviously it was just more than a missing person. So we swung into action then to notify things, people like the homicide squad and to get the crime scene management started up. Search and rescue to come in and set up to do searching for the person, whether the person was, at that stage, we weren't sure if the person was dead or alive.
2: As the homicide squad and police search and rescue were being notified, local police set up a crime scene around the car. The good thing about setting up a crime scene in a car park was that as people got off the train at Cananook, the police could question each person who headed to the car park. Were they on the train at 10.20 last night? Did they see anything? Notice anything unusual? And, of course, once the car park emptied, the detectives were better able to see the trail of blood from Sarah's car to the area of bush adjacent to the parking bays that separated the car park from Wells Road on the other side. Detective Inspector Laurie Ratz made his way to the car park to see for himself the scene that Randall and Clark had described.
6: I remember the day well, it was freezing. It was a freezing middle of uh, typical Melbourne winter's day it was drizzling rain which was not good for a crime scene and it was cold and we knew by like mid-afternoon that there was going to be a crime scene so we would be there for a long time and, and we wouldn't have much light much after five o'clock. So things swung into action pretty quickly from that moment on. I knew it was going to be a long night and I even in that early stages I hadn't even been to the crime scene so I drove home, got a big coat and made sure I had gloves and a scarf, and by the time I got to the uh, the crime scene, it had been established. We looked around the car, there was nothing to suggest that there'd been a struggle by the car. There was no scratches, there were, the door was locked, the car was quite secure, but you could see, once you had a bit of a look around towards the, the grass verge, which was only a few metres away, you could see two distinctive drag marks and you could see a pattern of what appeared to be blood in the ground. I know that sounds a little bit Police-y, but you see a dark stain, you're not really sure what it is. It could be oil, it could be, it could be anything, just discoloration of the soil. But we assumed at that stage that it was probably blood and, and from the drag marks, that gives you a fair indication that you're working with something that's quite serious.
2: A check with the transit police, who patrolled stations during the night, found that two transit cops had driven into the car park twice the night before. When they checked the car park at 2.30am, Sarah's car was the only one there. The transit police had radioed her registration to the police communication centre, D24, to check if the car was stolen. Aside from Sarah's car being the only one in the car park, the transit cops noticed nothing unusual or suspicious about it. At 3.50am, when they checked again, the car was still there. Again, they noticed nothing amiss. Detective Cole Clark wasn't surprised that the transit cops didn't see the blood. They didn't get out of their car and lighting in the car park was poor.
1: Because it was, we understood that it was about 10-20 that the train came in the night before that she was on and we're there at two o'clock in the afternoon the next day and the fact that the amount of blood that was still present, it's hard to explain, but a lot of different bitumens, it seemed to sink in. And obviously it wasn't seen by uh, Alistair who'd checked it, the brother, and the car was also checked by some of the transit police during the night, uh, some hours after, and they didn't see any blood either. So it would have been very hard at night. The place was very badly lit in the car park.
2: Of course, the transit cops from the night before and Sarah's brother Alistair weren't looking for blood. The cops were just patrolling the car park and Alistair was looking for his sister. Seeing for himself what Randall and Clark had pieced together from the evidence from the car park, Inspector Laurie Ratz was glad to have them on the job.
6: Randall and Clark had been there forever they'd grown up in the area they were locals they'd been at the uniform branch and then they'd been at the uh, the cib i think from memory if you added their service together in 1990 they'd probably been there a total of about 20 years experience so there wasn't much happening in frankston that they didn't know about and they were two very very good detectives and when i say trustworthy you knew that they would put their heart and soul into it the other detectives there, look, I would have taken any of them to do that job, but I was more than happy that Randall and Clark, who would probably have been the most experienced, were were there to take the scene. And that held out well, because they were very quickly noticed the areas in the crime scene that we were most concerned about that gave us an indication that we weren't just looking at a missing person.
2: Laurie Ratz agreed it was the presence of blood near Sarah's car that made this case different right from the start.
6: Well, I think it was the, obviously the blood changes your, your whole perspective about what's happening, and it was quite obvious that where the blood had been located, there were drag marks, so it was suspected at that stage that either a, a, a lifeless or unconscious body had been dragged to an area near the car, and from that moment had disappeared, so we had no idea whether she'd stood up and, and walked away in a daze, or if someone had actually taken her away.
2: Another local expert called past the crime scene that night. As the head of the Frankston State Emergency Service, or SES, Brian McManus was always ready to get his team together to do whatever Victoria Police needed them to do. Kananook Railway Station is on Wells Road opposite McCulloch Avenue. The Frankston SES headquarters is 300 metres down McCulloch Avenue in a little crescent that has since been named McManus Way after Brian to mark his long career with the SES. On Thursday the 12th of July 1990, Brian McManus drove past the Cananook Railway Station car park. He saw a bunch of police gathered there and naturally stopped.
7: The police were there and uh, I drove past and, you know, being the officer in charge, I stopped to speak to the police and they said, you Rock, can you get some of your troops out to do a search for us because we've got a missing girl? And I said, yeah, sure.
2: SES volunteers are on call all the time and Brian McManus quickly put a team together. If there was a small possibility that Sarah could have stumbled off in a daze after being attacked, then it was important to start at the scene and fan outwards to check anywhere she could have gone. In their initial search, Brian McManus and his SES team started close by.
7: We were called in and we started the search that night, searching the surrounding bushlands and the tea tree that's part of the, the Cannonook Railway Station. And then, of course, the next day we're out in force doing a wider search and covering the bushland up to One Beach and that sort of thing over in the middle of the freeway with all the tea tree in the freeway.
2: But in those early hours, it was important to check the immediate area.
7: But on the night we sort of felt that maybe she was local, right in the bushes and that sort of thing.
2: For Brian too, the blood was a game changer in terms of search parameters.
7: If they hadn't have found the blood next to the door of the car on the ground, then probably wouldn't have been a different scenario to them. She could have just walked off or disappeared, didn't want to be found or anything like that, of course, but but I think when we were first there and we saw the car there, and the the blood on the ground, it sort of indicated to everybody that there'd been foul play.
2: But of course, there was another possibility, perhaps a stronger one. The evidence suggested that Sarah had been attacked at her car before she had a chance to open the door, then dragged over to the bushes. After lying there for some time, bleeding heavily, if she didn't leave on her own, Then someone took her. Coming up in the next episode of Searching for Sarah McDermott.
0: I was just feeding my little boy. He was just almost four months at the time. And Sarah's photo came up on the morning news.
6: When she's come down the bottom of the stairs and walked towards the car park, she's virtually walked into the darkness.